Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got a new addition to the EM Quick Hits, the best of Rebel EM with my friend and fellow educator, the Rebel himself, Salim Rose from San Antonio, Texas. He's going to give us a quick hit on how best to administer adenosine for SVT. But as he'll mention, and as I've mentioned a couple of times before on EM cases, my first line medication in SVT is diltiazem. There's good evidence that it works just as well as adenosine, but without that terrible feeling of doom that patients get with adenosine. Take it away, Sal. Hey there, this is Salim Razai, creator and founder of Rebel EM. This month, what I thought we would do is cover a paper that got a ton of traction on the Rebel EM website. We can just call it the best of Rebel EM. And it was on single syringe adenosine for supraventricular tachycardia. Now, as a bit of background, the 2015 American Heart Association guidelines for adult advanced cardiac life support recommend adenosine in non-hypotensive patients in regular narrow complex supraventricular tachycardia, or SVT for short. Now, the thing about adenosine is it has a rapid onset and a half-life that is less than 10 seconds. This makes it an ideal agent for hemodynamically stable patients in SVT because it's a quick-on, quick-off medication, but also on the other side of that, because of the short half-life of adenosine, several advocate for a two-way stopcock where adenosine and a 10 to 20 ml saline flush are given in tandem. The logistics and timing with using a two-way stopcock can be challenging and can result in less rapid flush than intended, making adenosine not as effective. So what the authors of this trial did is a single-center prospective observational non-inferiority study. They evaluated the administration of adenosine delivered as a single syringe diluted with normal saline, compared to the two-syringe method for conversion of SVT to normal sinus rhythm. Their primary outcome was the percentage of patients with successful conversion of SVT to normal sinus rhythm after the first dose. So what were the results? 53 patients were enrolled, and when you look at the successful conversion to normal sinus rhythm with the first dose, the single syringe technique got us up to 73.1% conversion, and the two-syringe technique with the stopcock only got 40.7%. Interestingly, as one of their secondary outcomes, when you look at successful conversion to normal sinus rhythm with up to three doses of adenosine, the single syringe technique got us up to 100% conversion rate, and the two syringe technique got us up to 70.4%. Now, a couple of things about this study. So the success rate of the two syringe technique is low in this study. Most people will typically convert in the mid to high 80s with adenosine using that two syringe technique. What isn't clear is if this is a reflection of bias in the study since clinicians knew what they were giving, or is this simply a case of there would be a regression to the mean with additional patients? Maybe the study was too small. Now, for full transparency, I have to tell you my practice in patients with stable SVT isn't to give adenosine as my first move. My go-to move is actually the modified Valsalva maneuver. And this has been shown to have a conversion rate of nearly 40% in three studies now. If this is not successful, my next agent would be a calcium channel blocker like diltiazem. And I generally like to give that as 10 milligram aliquots. 
so that I'm not giving too much medication, but I can always give more. Now, I realize the guidelines say to start with 20 and then follow that up with 25, but I've had pretty good success with just 10 milligrams. And once you've given too much medication, it's not like you can take it away. So the bottom line for me in this study is that from a pragmatic standpoint, single syringe adenosine makes sense. And although we now have two small studies that show single syringe adenosine to be non-inferior to two syringe adenosine, we have to be cautious about making robust conclusions based on the level of evidence. In this study, we don't know the location of IVs, the two syringe technique that was used, what other medications were given, and the numbers are just simply too small to make any comments on adverse events. But for now, until we get further evidence, if I was going to give adenosine, I would give it as a single syringe. Well said, Salim. Next up, we've got Dr. Sarah Reed. She's going to tell us just about everything you need to know about pertussis in kids in five minutes. Pertussis is a really contagious bacterial respiratory infection that's most severe in infants who are not fully vaccinated. But even if you get immunized against pertussis, or even if you've had it, you don't get long-lasting immunity. So we always have pertussis around in the community and regular pertussis epidemics. The immunization for pertussis is at 2, 4, 6, and 18 months, and then you get boosted at 4 to 6 years and 14 to 16 years. And adults over 18 should get at least one dose of the booster, and women are supposed to get immunized during every pregnancy. If you've had four doses of the vaccine, it's about 90% effective at preventing whooping cough during the first four to six years of life. And if you immunize a pregnant woman, it protects the baby under three months in about 90% of the time. There's waning immunity after immunization in teens and adults. This infection has three phases. The first is the catarrhal phase that happens a week or two after you're exposed. You get coryza, low-grade fever, mild cough. It's really very similar to URTI, and it lasts a week or two. Then you get the paroxysmal phase, where the cough is worsening, and the patient starts to get these paroxysmal episodes of cough, where they have cough, 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 and they might have an inspiratory whoop at the end. So cough, 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 cough. <gasps> these paroxysmal episodes may be associated with perioral cyanosis, especially in young infants. Post-tessive emesis is common, and the patient's usually pretty well in between the coughing episodes. They're not usually febrile at this stage, so if they have a fever, you need to think about something else. And this stage can last one to six weeks. And then they go into a convalescent phase where the coughing is improving, but it could be quite prolonged, and that's why pertussis is called the 100-day cough. The clinical course varies with age, and young infants who are most worried about um, can have quite atypical symptoms. So they may not have a whoop, they may not have post-tessive emesis, they could just present with apnea. So we just have to have a high index of suspicion in that age group. Pertussis is usually quite a bit milder in adolescents and adults. They can actually be asymptomatic all the way to having a very debilitating cough that's prolonged. And it's felt to be a pretty common cause of prolonged cough in this age group. So if you have a cough more than two weeks, you got to think about pertussis. There's about one to four deaths per year in Canada for pertussis. And it's usually in a baby under six months who's not fully immunized. So basically for us in eMERGE, I think the first thing is to know who to worry about. And that's those infants who are unimmunized or underimmunized. They've had less than those first four vaccines, especially if they're under two months with no vaccine at all. And especially if their mom didn't get vaccinated during pregnancy. We need to think about it in patients who have those classic symptoms, so that paroxysmal cough, apnea, post-tessive emesis, 
cyanosis with coughing, and then it's a bit easy if they present with that classic whoop at the end of the coughing. Fever is not usually a feature in that paroxysmal phase, so think about something else. We also have to think about it in patients, older kids, teens, and adults who have cough over two weeks. We know that there's waning immunity, and we know that pertussis is always around. If you look on the Ottawa Public Health website, they talk about a probable case being a cough lasting longer than two weeks with any one of paroxysmal cough of any duration, cough with an inspiratory whoop, or cough ending in vomiting, gagging, or associated with apnea. If you've done a CBC on a patient who has pertussis, they usually have a lymphocytosis. And this is seen in the paroxysmal phase when they're having that crazy cough. And um, it's directly correlated with disease severity. Number two is making the diagnosis. So this is done by PCR of a nasopharyngeal aspirate or swab for Bordetella pertussis. A CBC can be helpful, as we talked about. And then if you have an infant who's quite symptomatic, so like apnea, for example, you're probably going to be doing other stuff, like adding in a chest X-ray, blood gas, doing nasopharyngeal viral studies, like looking for RSV, doing a full septic workup if they're just presenting with that apnea. And even if you're just investigating a patient for pertussis, you're supposed to exclude them from daycare, work, school, because it's really contagious. Third is treatment. So primarily supportive care. The babies with apnea need respiratory support, of course. They might start with just nasal prong oxygen. You might go on to a high-flow nasal cannula, and then perhaps even positive pressure ventilation, either invasive or non-invasive. We have to maintain their hydration. And then everybody gets treated with a five-day course of a macrolide. So usually it's azithromycin for five days. Treatment decreases infectivity and might decrease severity of illness if it started early. A fun fact about macrolides with uh, little babies is that it puts them at risk of getting pyloric stenosis. So they need to be monitored for projectile vomiting for one to two months after treatment. Close contacts of a patient with pertussis do get chemoprophylaxed, plus or minus immunization if they're not immunized, um, only if there are high-risk people in the house. So that means if there's an infant or a pregnant woman in the house, then you have to do that step. They, of course, need to be excluded from work and daycare and school until they've completed a treatment of five days of their macrolide, and this is a reportable illness to public health. And then lastly is disposition. I think for an infant presenting with something that looks like pertussis, if you're worried about that, you should talk to your pediatric referral site. Um, Babies under the age of six months do get admitted usually if they're symptomatic, and they may even need a PICU if they are having apnea. So the diagnosis of pertussis is easy when you hear that inspiratory whoop, but that's often missing. So the key points are to think about pertussis in any baby who presents with just apnea or perioral cyanosis or vomiting associated with a cough, especially if they are not immunized. And in older kids and adults, we need to think about pertussis when they have a cough lasting more than two weeks, hence the nickname the 100-day cough, especially if they're having paroxysms of cough or cough ending in vomiting. And it's in this stage that there is not a fever. So that's pertussis. Next up, we've got a special guest, my colleague at North York General, an up-and-coming educator star who was a major player in the team who built the EM Cases Quiz Vault, Dr. Alicia Targonsky. He's going to go through the best treatment options and steps in treatment for hyperemesis gravidarum, something that we see all the time at our hospital and where we also see a lot of practice variation. Your next patient is a 25-year-old woman who's nine weeks pregnant. She's been miserable for the last 24 hours because she's been having nausea and vomiting nonstop. 
In her two previous pregnancies, she's also had significant nausea and vomiting. The last 24 hours, she can't tolerate any fluids and has come here to the emergency department for some relief of her terrible symptoms. Her physical exam is unremarkable. She has normal vitals and a benign abdomen. Does this sound like a familiar patient encounter to you? Well, as I'm sure you're all aware, nausea and vomiting is very common in pregnancy. There's lots of options at our disposal to make these patients feel better. In this quick hit, I'd like to focus on a few common and important questions. Like, what is the first-line pharmacologic therapy of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy? And is there a controversy around the pyridoxine-doxylamine combination? Is ondansetron safe to use in pregnancy? And what are my preferred choices for IV medications for these patients in the eMERGE? First of all, there's a few things you can offer your patient that women can try at home without needing therapies from their doctor. For example, they can switch to a prenatal vitamin that doesn't contain iron. They can try eating foods that are only appealing and avoid those with a strong odor. And then there's ginger products. Ginger can be used at a dose of 250 milligrams QID. There's no evidence for harms, but there's certainly some evidence for improvement of nausea and vomiting. Ginger may antagonize dopamine and serotonin, resulting in improved gastric motility. But let's say you've tried all these, or the patient has tried them, and she still needs more therapy. In Canada, the first-line treatment for years has been diclectin, which is a combination pill of 10 milligrams of paradoxine, aka vitamin B6, and 10 milligrams of doxylamine, which is an H1 receptor antagonist. This is available in the U.S. under the brand name Diclegis. Your typical dosing is four tabs a day with two at nighttime. You might be wondering what the evidence is for diclectin in the treatment of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. A 2010 double-blind RCT of 256 women used the PUKE score, that stands for Pregnancy Unique Quantification of Emesis, and it showed significant improvement of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy in patients taking delayed-release diclectin over placebo. There is some limited evidence that diclectin may be more effective than paradoxine alone, based on some old data from a 1997 meta-analysis by the organization Mother Risk. As a matter of fact, diclectin was subsequently recommended as first line for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy in the 2002 guidelines from the Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Canada, which were produced in collaboration with Mother Risk. These were further reinforced in a 2015 article in Canadian Family Physician suggesting diclectin as first line. Did you know there is controversy around diclectin? It turns out that a subsequent reanalysis of the data from this 1997 study by Mother Risk called into question the findings that diclectin was actually superior to pyridoxine alone. In light of these new findings, the Canadian family physician severed its ties with Mother Risk. And to further complicate things, it turns out that Mother Risk actually had a relationship with the pharmaceutical company Duchesne, which just so happens to be the manufacturer of diclectin. There are also some conflicting reports of increased risk of pyloric stenosis or childhood malignancies associated with diclectin, although Health Canada published a review of diclectin in 2016 and said that the benefits still outweigh the risk. In light of these findings, the College of Family Physicians of Canada now recommends pyridoxine alone as a first-line treatment of nausea and vomiting pregnancy. Starting dose is 25 milligrams TID. The SOGC 2016 guidelines still recommend diclectin or paradoxine as your first choice as a class 1A recommendation. So back to your patient who is suffering and is not a candidate right now for at-home remedies or paradoxine just yet. Have you considered what your choices are? What would you offer next in the emergency department? The 2016 SOGC guidelines recommend H1 blockers such as dimenhydrinate or diphenhydramine as your next choice. 
at a dose of 25 to 50 milligrams IV, PO, or rectal every four to six hours. These medications have a good track record and have been shown to be safe in pregnancy. After your antihistamines, what would you consider next in your treatment? Your next choice, according to the SOGC guidelines, would be metoclopramide, also known as Maxran or Reglan in the United States, at a dose of 5 to 10 milligrams PO or IV every 8 hours. There's no known risk for fetal abnormalities, but there is a small risk of maternal extrapyramidal side effects. The SOGC guidelines also suggest phenothiazines such as chlorpromazine or promethazine as your next choice, instead of or after Maxaran. And what's the deal with ondansetron, or Zofran as we commonly know it? Apparently, there are some data that suggest an increased risk of cleft palate or cardiac defects. These data come from a Danish nationwide cohort study and a Swedish birth registry study that found elevated odds ratios for cardiac defects in patients taking ondansetron. Furthermore, a 2013 National Birth Defects Prevention Study showed an odds ratio that was higher for risk of cleft palate in patients taking ondansetron. While certainly its efficacy is comparable to metoclopramide, you might want to consider ondansetron as your last-line therapy and only if others have failed. So you've taken all these data together and you have your patient in front of you. She's been having nausea and vomiting for the last 24 hours. What is your stepwise approach? For me, I start with dimenhydrinate, 50 milligrams IV, with a concurrent bolus of crystalloid, and then I follow with a trial of PO fluids. If this fails, my second go-to medication is Maxran or metoclopramide, 10 milligrams IV, again followed by a trial of fluids. If my patient is still suffering and can't tolerate anything PO, my third line is on Dancitron, 8 milligrams IV, and at this point, I'm calling my OB gynae colleagues to consider admission. Don't forget to address dehydration and correct any underlying electrolyte abnormalities, and consider a dose of thiamine as well. If you're discharging your patient home, remember to suggest ginger, up to 250 milligrams QID, and reinforce the dietary lifestyle changes that your patient can do at home. You can also add on pyridoxine 25 milligrams TID or diclectin four tabs daily. You can follow this with dimenhydrinate orally or rectally as needed. And sometimes you can add a prescription for metoclopramide, phenothiazine, or ondansetron, but be sure to discuss the potential risks with the patient. For those patients well enough to go home, but at risk of dehydration, consider intermittent or home IV fluids. In Ontario, depending on your local resources, you can arrange this as a 1 liter crystalloid infusion containing 50 milligrams of dimenhydrinate infused over a few hours. And don't forget to arrange close follow-up with your OB-GYN. Thanks so much, Alicia. And now from our sponsors. The Metricade system is partially tech and partially professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift, while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. And when you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler on call. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help the expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Next up, we have Joe Nemeth, who you may remember from his crazy trauma best case ever. He's an EM doc from Montreal, and he's going to rant about the value of hypertension as a cardiovascular risk factor in emergency medicine. We pride 
distinguish and separate ourselves from our peers in other fields by the fact that we can funnel and filter incredible amounts of complex information to the need to know, what I call increasing the signal to noise ratio. Signal being pertinent positives and negatives, noise being completely irrelevant, useless information. Aristotle said it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought or idea without accepting it. In the next few minutes, I will try to convince hopefully most of you that an almost sacrilegious piece of data that we all cling on to with each patient is completely useless in most acute presentations in emergency medicine. Here's a case. 50-year-old male with a chief complaint of X. Past medical history known for hypertension plus Y plus Z. Our claim be it ever so bold, is that no matter what you are substituting for X as chief complaint, a past medical history of hypertension is akin to asking if blue or green is the patient's favorite color. It is noise. Before I explain my preposterous claim, allow me to specify one thing. We are not talking about high blood pressure-related presentations, i.e. hypertensive emergencies. Really, what we're looking at is acute cardiovascular presentations and the significance of a past medical history of hypertension. So here we go. Number one, the definition of this condition is not well defined and it is a moving target. Number two, the scope of the problem is unknown. It is difficult to identify true versus quota prevalence rates and who is optimally treated. And number three, a past medical history of hypertension its presence has very limited diagnostic value, piss-poor positive and negative likelihood ratios. Let's start with number one. Hypertension. Definition is unclear. First of all, correct measurement of blood pressure in primary care where this diagnosis is made is often problematic because of the myriad of confounders influencing BP at one time. Factors such as patient's emotional demeanor, obtaining a measurement from an unsupported arm, yadi yadi da, can all increase systolic blood pressure by at least 10 millimeters of mercury. Furthermore, although it is universally agreed that systolic BP should be recorded at auscultation of Korotkov phase one, the proper recording of the diastolic values are often debated as either Korotkov phase four or five. By the way, I don't even know what Korotkov sounds are, and if you're honest, neither do you. Another significant challenge when defining hypertension is that values for hypertension and treatment thresholds are moving targets, changing frequently with a variety of different organizations often failing to reach a consensus. Additionally, hypertension cutoff can vary with age, sex, and comorbidities, and the modality by which BP measurements are done. Number two, scope of the problem is unknown. The quoted prevalence rates differ significantly depending on whether one looks at the primary care or ED population data. The prevalence of hypertension in primary care has been consistently quoted at approximately 30%, with those above 50 years of age surpassing 50%. Additionally, the rates quoted in the ED population are traditionally higher than those in the general population. Also, one could debate the true significance of a past medical history of hypertension in those patients who achieve ideal BP control with medication. For example, let's compare patient A with a past medical history of hypertension who religiously controls his BP 
and has been on daily recording of BP of less than 120 over 80 for years versus patient B, who is not known for hypertension, but has been unknowingly having BPs above 180 over 100 for the past 10 years. Who, I argue, is at higher risk? Number two, past medical history of hypertension has very limited diagnostic value. Before we talk about that, let's talk about likelihood ratios. For the sake of brevity, only the most common and serious cardiovascular diseases will be evaluated regarding likelihood ratios. Let's look at acute coronary syndrome. We all know it can manifest in a myriad of presentations in the ED. Few historical elements have enough sensitivity and specificity to sufficiently diagnose or rule out ACS. And a past medical history of hypertension is no exception. As highlighted by the positive-negative-like ratios, both of them tethering close to one. In fact, many of the clinical decision rules and guidelines acknowledge the lack of utility in the ED diagnosis of ACS of a past medical history of hypertension by omitting it in patients of certain ages or completely ignoring it or assigning it a negligible value. You want others? I'll give you others. Acute aortic syndrome, positive likelihood ratio 1.6, negative likelihood ratio 0.5, hemorrhagic stroke, positive likelihood ratio 1.1, negative 0.88, acute heart failure 1.2.84. In conclusion, hypertension is an important and common risk factor in the development of the majority of illnesses on the cardiovascular disease spectrum. Risk factor identification and modification is an essential part of preventive primary care medicine. However, acute care in the ED is arguably less focused on preventive and primary care than it is on the diagnosis of life-threatening diseases. In this context, a past medical history of hypertension as a significant piece of the diagnostic puzzle has limited application in the acute care setting. I leave the listeners with this quote from William Butler Yeats, a noted Irish poet and one of the foremost figures of 20th century literature. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. I hope I lit some fires. Nemeth, out. Next up, we've got Justin Morgenstern feeding us some EBM goodies on one of the most commonly used analgesics on the planet. And I'll give you a hint. We covered it briefly in our main episode on drugs that work and drugs that don't. This time for the evidence-based medicine segment, I thought I'd cover why I think tramadol is an awful drug. Now, when we talk evidence-based medicine, you would think that there was a large RCT that just came out proving that tramadol is a bad drug. But I'll tell you right off the bat, we don't have a big RCT comparing tramadol to oral morphine, for example. But I think the main point of this episode is that evidence-based medicine is about a lot more than just RCTs and meta-analyses. And in fact, most of our decisions have to be made without giant RCTs, so we'd have to figure out how to make those decisions in an evidence-based way. So when it comes to tramadol, let's go back to the most basic type of evidence, basic science. Tramadol in and of itself is not an opioid, but when you swallow it, it's converted in the liver to something called O-desmethyl tramadol, which is an opioid and binds to the mu receptor with the same strength as morphine. So tramadol is definitely not a weak opioid. It is as strong as morphine. It is an opioid. 
The problem is, in order to become an opioid, it has to get converted through the CYP2D6 enzymes. These are the same enzymes that convert codeine and make codeine an awful drug as well. And the big issue is that some people don't have this enzyme at all. Some people have one copy, some people have two, and some people even have duplicates. So they have three, four, five, or six copies of this enzyme. And so as a result, you get drastically varying differences in the amount of opioid you get from a single tablet of tramadol. Some people will get no pain relief at all, while others will get very high doses and very high concentrations. Tramadol is probably even worse because the component of the drug that isn't converted to an opioid is actually an SNRI, a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And so that adds to the complications that we see from tramadol. Tramadol is associated with seizures and hypoglycemia and hyponatremia and also causes serotonin syndrome. So from a very basic science standpoint, it never made a lot of sense to prescribe this over something more consistent, like morphine, for example. I guess the next thing to consider is whether tramadol works. Are, are we providing good pain relief? And I think at a basic level, we know for the 10% of the population that doesn't have the required enzyme, they're not going to get any pain relief. But there have actually been a large number of RCTs. And if you compare tramadol to a 400 milligram dose of ibuprofen, these RCTs say that tramadol is either the same as ibuprofen or a little bit worse when it comes to providing pain relief. The problem is, for the same amount of pain relief as 400 milligrams of ibuprofen, you get significantly more side effects. So tramadol is not a very effective drug. So the next question would be harm. And I already said, because of its SNRI effects, tramadol does have more side effects than some of our standard opioids. And much like codeine, there have been case reports of people having respiratory depression even at usual doses, presumably because they're ultra-metabolizers who get that very high opioid dose. So the next question, and I think a reason a lot of people decide to use tramadol is because they don't really think about it as an opioid. They don't think about this drug as a drug causing addiction. But I'll tell you, there is no evidence that tramadol is safer than any other opioid, and just at a basic level, there's no reason that it should be. Tramadol is abused around the world. It's the number one opioid of abuse in a lot of countries. It causes withdrawal. It causes fMRI changes consistent with addiction. So I don't think that there's any reason to believe that tramadol is safer from an addiction or abuse standpoint. And in fact, it's possible it's worse. So there's been two big database trials, one by Thiels published in 2019 in the BMJ, and when you compare tramadol to other short-acting opioids when prescribed after standard surgeries, the patients taking tramadol are much more likely to end up using opioids in the long run, up to six months or a year later. Now, this is just a database study, so there may be confounders that we're missing there. But if we just go back to basic pharmacology, we know that 1-3% to of patients given tramadol will get a very high serum concentration of the opioid active metabolite. And so it might actually make sense that we could see higher rates of abuse and dependence. When you put this all together, I don't see any reason to prescribe tramadol. Whenever you're giving tramadol, you're rolling the dice. Some patients will get no pain relief at all, and some patients will get very high doses of opioids. And then you're mixing in the complicated SNRI pharmacology on top of that. We're gambling, and we're gambling with our patient's health. I use oral morphine for my patients instead. Tramadol is just a poor choice if you're trying to provide consistent and reliable pain control for your patients. 
Last up on the CM Quick Hits, we have none other than the brilliant Ruben Strayer, who I caught up with at the ASAP conference in Denver a few months back to talk about Kobe, K-O-B-I. And you guessed it, the K is for ketamine. So this is an alternative approach to awake intubation, which you may have heard before on EM cases with George Kovacs. Here we've got Ruben talking about ketamine-only breathing intubation. Thanks, Anton. When I was training, we had a singular pharmacologic approach to intubation, and that was RSI. Rapid sequence intubation is pre-oxygenation, followed by the simultaneous administration of a paralytic and induction agent, followed by laryngoscopy. This is a fantastic technique for a variety of reasons. It's fast, it provides the optimal view of the glottis, it makes laryngoscopy and tube delivery as easy as possible, and prevents vomiting, which protects against aspiration. The problem with RSI is that paralysis, as awesome as it is, can also kill the patient who was breathing before and is now not breathing, if you cannot intubate and cannot oxygenate that patient. But when I was training, all we had was the traditional laryngoscope and direct laryngoscopy, and with DL, the difference between giving the patient a paralytic or not was often the difference between having an intubatable view or not. So we didn't have to focus as much on the harms of paralysis because the benefit was so huge. But that's changed because in the past decade, we have seen the nearly universal adoption of video laryngoscopy and with VL, you will get an intubatable view nearly every time, whether you paralyze or not. And this has changed the calculation around paralysis versus no paralysis but we haven't properly updated our practice to reflect it. Now that we can get a view with or without a paralytic, we need to be thinking about who is most likely to be harmed by paralysis, and it's a complex calculation with a lot of variables, confounded by what I call the paralysis paradox. The paralysis paradox stipulates that if laryngoscopy is unsuccessful and then rescue ventilation is unsuccessful, we generally do not want the patient paralyzed, we want that patient breathing. However, administering a paralytic makes it less likely that laryngoscopy and rescue ventilation will fail. That's the paralysis paradox, and it challenges us to decide on when to give a paralytic or not. But there are some cases where you should consider alternatives to RSI. The most important case is the anatomically difficult intubation patient, where getting an adequate view of the glottis is difficult. We don't have great tools to predict this. The tools that most of us were taught don't work very well, but there are some patients where you are pretty confident that this laryngoscopy is going to be tough. In those cases, if the patient is breathing now, meaning the patient isn't apneic or nearly apneic, and isn't a high risk to vomit, that's a patient who should probably not be paralyzed. The alternative to paralysis is conventionally called awake intubation, and this is conventionally done with meticulously applied local anesthetic that allows the patient to tolerate laryngoscopy while completely awake, hence the name. It is conventionally done with flexible endoscopy, what's often called fiber-optic bronchoscopy, even though the devices are no longer fiber-optic and we're not doing bronchoscopy. In any case, this technique, topicalized awake intubation, is a core skill for anesthesiologists, and many emergency docs are very good at it. When done well, it provides a tremendous degree of safety. It is an excellent, excellent technique for managing patients thought to be or known to be anatomically difficult to intubate. However, this technique poses several problems for emergency docs. Firstly, Topicalized awake requires time. How much time depends on how good you are at this technique, how good your materials are, and how ready your materials are. But there's no way to do this without a few minutes of preparation. Most of the time downstairs we have a few minutes, but sometimes we don't. Topicalized awake also requires some degree of patient cooperation. 
Now, there are some folks who are experts at this who claim they can do this without patient cooperation. I'm not going to name names, but one of them is well known to your audience and works in Halifax. I won't speak for what others can or cannot do, but I am confident that most emergency docs are not going to be doing a true topicalized awake technique on a combative patient. And this points to a larger issue, which is that topicalized awake generally requires not only at least some time and cooperation, which we sometimes don't have, it also requires a skill set that is often poorly taught in emergency medicine training and materials, like concentrated lidocaine and fancy atomizers that you may or may not have available to you. Now, the awake experts say... That's not an excuse. We should all have the tools and expertise to carry out this technique, and I agree. I agree that topicalized awake intubation is an outstanding technique that all emergency docs should have the capability to do and do well. However, the fact is that most of us do not. For a number of years, I have been using dissociative dose ketamine without a paralytic to facilitate laryngoscopy as the patient continues to breathe. This is not properly called an awake technique because the patient is not awake. They're dissociated. But the patient is breathing, so I call it a breathing technique, which is what we really mean when we say awake intubation. We mean not paralyzed. We mean breathing. I call it COBE, ketamine-only breathing intubation, and the way it works is you give your dissociative dose, like 100 milligrams, over 30 seconds, and then the patient dissociates. Most dissociated patients will tolerate laryngoscopy well as they continue to breathe. Not as well as a paralyzed patient, not as well as the meticulously topicalized patient, but well enough to get the procedure done expeditiously and safely. I like to spray some lidocaine as I gently, slowly advance the laryngoscope, which smooths things out, but it isn't necessary. My preferred approach is to cannulate the moving cords with a bougie, and then push the paralytic and advance the ET tube over the bougie, but you don't have to get fancy, you can just intubate with a styleted tube with care. The value of this technique is that it puts the safety of a topicalized awake technique in the hands of docs who aren't going to do topicalized awake. It's about as fast as RSI and uses skills and materials all of us already have. All else being equal, topicalized awake is a better technique than Kobe, but all else isn't equal. The choice for many pit docs isn't topicalized awake versus ketamine only, it's ketamine only versus RSI. And we don't know with data that ketamine only is a better technique than RSI, or in which patients ketamine only is preferred because there is essentially no data. And that's a problem. There are other problems. Some patients who get ketamine only will become rigid, which can confound laryngoscopy and occasionally confound breathing. So you have to be ready for this with paralytic drawn up in syringe when you're doing Kobe in case you need to immediately convert to RSI. That's happened to me once in many, many cases, but it's an important caveat. I've not seen or heard of vomiting during Kobe, but it's the most important theoretical risk. These disadvantages have to be weighed against the advantages for each patient. Again, the case where Kobe is most likely to be preferred over RSI is the case where you are very concerned or know for certain laryngoscopy is going to be difficult and the patient isn't crashing and topicalized awake isn't a great option because of patient cooperation or lack of the right materials or familiarity with the technique. So RSI is awesome. Paralysis is awesome, and it's going to be the best way to intubate most patients downstairs, but paralysis isn't needed in the same way it used to be now that we have video. So always ask the question, should I keep this patient breathing during intubation? And if the answer is yes, consider the different ways you do that. The less time, the less cooperation, the less lidocaine, the more ketamine. Let me ask you one question there, Ruben. What is the difference between Kobe and delayed sequence intubation that Scott Weingart wrote about a, a bunch of years ago? They're very different. So delayed sequence intubation, DSI, 
is a technique for managing patients who will not allow you to pre-oxygenate them or otherwise prepare to intubate them for agitation. Agitation because they're hypoxic or because they're PCP intoxicated or whatever. So DSI is the administration of a dissociative dose of ketamine, often by the intramuscular route, because you don't have IV access yet, for example, and then the patient dissociates. And during the period of dissociation, you can prepare to intubate. Most importantly, you can pre-oxygenate the patient, get your lines, get all the materials ready, whatever you need to do. But then when it's time to actually perform laryngoscopy, you push the paralytic and do what is a paralyzed, non-breathing approach to intubation. That's DSI. The purpose of DSI is to facilitate preparation for intubation, like pre-oxygenation, most importantly, in the patient who otherwise won't let you do that. COBE, ketamine-only breathing intubation, is for the patient your very concern will be harmed by even a brief period of apnea, or you're very concerned that laryngoscopy is going to be very difficult or impossible. And the purpose of, of COBE is to keep the patient breathing during laryngoscopy, during the intubation attempt itself. The purpose of DSI is to allow you to prepare and pre-oxygenate the patient prior to laryngoscopy. Well, there you have it. Ketamine-only breathing intubation, COBE, which is really a good option for the anticipated difficult airway when you don't have the luxury of time for a proper awake intubation. That about wraps it up for this Quick Hits podcast. Hope to see you all at EMU Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto, May 6th to 8th. And if you want some written quick hit type clinical pearls, sign up for the EM Cases Pearl of the Week delivered straight to your inbox every Sunday evening. Just hit the newsletter icon on the EM Cases homepage and follow the instructions to subscribe. Until next time, take it easy.